Uh, before we came out here, we were praying out there, and Jenny Bush uh, read a chorus. And I'm going to ask her to quote the chorus and then lead us in prayer. Thank you. So this song just came to mind while we were praying, um, and it's the song, uh, the first line is, Wake every heart and every tongue to see, sing the new eternal song. Um, and the chorus says, You are the highest, you are the greatest, you are the Lord of all. Angels will worship, nations will bow down to the Lord of all. And there's a line in verse 2 that says, um, Your name, unrivaled, stands alone. Um, so yeah, that seems like a prayer for this morning, so I will pray. Father, we want to be people who declare that you are the highest, you are the greatest thing in our lives. Greater than anything that we can see, things we can't see, things that we feel in control of and things that we feel are way out of control. Father, we want to be people that declare you are the highest, you are the greatest, you are the Lord of all. And Father, we want to be people who, through the week, um, are people that show that your name is unrivaled and it stands alone. That there's nothing alongside it to compete. There is nothing more that we need than you, Jesus. Your name, unrivaled, stands alone. So Father, as Dave speaks to us from your word, would you, would you um, help us to receive it? Would you help us to put it into practice as we leave this place? And would you make us more into people who by the very way that we live our lives, the words we speak, the things that we do, the things that we think about, are people who say that you are the Lord of all and that your name is unrivaled and stands above everything in this world. Amen. I begin with the disclaimer. This is a, um, a series about the minor prophets, but I'm not an expert on the minor prophets. I don't speak Hebrew. I don't read Hebrew. You can show me some Hebrew letters and I wouldn't be able to tell you what they are. So in that respect, I'm not a, an expert. And some of you do speak Hebrew and you may want to sort of advise me along the way. I will accept that gratefully. Um, but I do have a Bible. And as part of the preparation for this morning, I read all the minor prophets yesterday. It just blew my mind. Instead of reading a verse here and a verse there, reading them one after the other, you get the impression of an awesome God who, as Jenny prayed, is Lord of the nations, to whom the angels bow down, who is a God who actually is answerable to no one, for he alone is God. He's not answerable to you or to me or to our denomination or our ideas or our theologies. He is God. So, some of you have heard me say the opening a few times recently, but I want to read from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 follows on from chapter 5. <laughs> and chapter 5 is um, an expression of the Ten Commandments. It's, Moses is reminding the people of Israel, do you remember back when, when I went up on the mountain and God spoke to me, and I came down with commandments. And you remember how, after I came down with commandments, we met together, 
and God said that he would be our God and be with us and he made a covenant with us. And that covenant is a lasting covenant which God has made with us. The Almighty with us, his mere people. And we said, all that the Lord says, we will do. And that was the covenant. Many times, even in the wilderness, the Israelites reneged on their covenant. And numbers of them sinned, but at the heart of his law... God also gave a sacrificial system which ultimately was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Gave a sacrificial system because the mere fact that Almighty God makes a covenant with a sinful people is grace before you begin. And it continues in grace throughout. And the people's agreement was to obey the Lord but to trust him to live by faith. That was always at the heart of it. And when the people just trusted in the law or in their institutions or in their religious circles, they ceased from faith and entered into sin. Now then, Moses has reminded the people of that. And then we come to what is the start of chapter 6. These are the commandments, decrees and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel. And be careful to obey that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and with all your heart, with all your strength. These are the commands that I give you today. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you didn't dig and vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I'm told that the correct way of pronouncing the Jewish word relating to verse 4 is Shema. It's their great declaration of faith, the great Jewish declaration of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our Lord, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you look in your Bibles, 
It's one of those occasions, or two of those occasions, when the word Lord is spelt in capital letters. It represents the name Yahweh. I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. It is the name that God gave to Moses when Moses said, and the people will say to me, who sent you? Who shall I say? And God said, say, I am sent you. There is no other God. And as we said at the beginning, he is not answerable to any other God or any other system. He's the maker and the creator of the world. This vast stretch of universe, or is it universes, that Peter spoke about, are the work of his hands. Now, is he a mighty God, or isn't he? He is an awesome God. Surely, when we look up into these universe, or universes, we're supposed to say, how great is our God, and how extraordinary that he cares for you and me. The work of his fingers. Isn't that amazing? And when you consider what sinful people, the people of Israel are, and God's people continue to be, sometimes deliberately, sometimes unwittingly, how extraordinary his grace. And for us who are Christians, how amazing that the word should become flesh and live amongst us and be crucified to fulfill the sacrificial system and make an end to our sins. Isn't that awesome? Now the people of Israel were called to be God's witnesses in the earth. God had promised the nations in effect through Abraham, I will bless all nations through you. God had chosen Abraham Only God knows why he chose Abraham, but he did, and called him out and made of him a mighty nation. And this mighty nation was a nation which, through the covenant, God promised he would be with them, as he was in the wilderness. Do you remember? He was with them by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And all nations who cared to look could say, surely their God is with them. Remember when when Israel saved at one time, Moses said, God, if you do not go up with us, we're lost. God's covenant promise was to be with his people and his people enjoying his grace and his favour and living out his way of life would be evidence to the nations around of the glory of the God of all men and all nations. But you know and I know that Israel sinned. And the minor prophets, which is what, which are the ones we're going to be thinking about, but only introducing them one at a time each week, not going into depth, introducing them, hoping that you will go away and say, I want to read this. I want to look at this myself and say, God, what are you saying to us through these men? The minor prophets are only minor because the length of their prophecies is shorter than Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So the others are shorter, and therefore they're called minor. But their prophecies, their, their appearance, their, their lives cover a period of roughly 250 years, sometimes overlapping, sometimes not. But they appear on the scene 
when Israel is moving away from its relationship with God. They are God's messengers to bring the people back to him. So, the prophecies are full of issues which are political issues, spiritual, religious issues, social issues, family issues, interrelational issues. But the whole point of reminding the people of these things is that they are called to serve him who alone is God. And so the prophets are all trying to bring the people back to God. Unfortunately, because they're called or commissioned at a time when Israel are failing God, there seems to be an awful lot of God's warnings in them. And we should take note of that. Because you've got to ask the question whether with Jesus God really changed. Or is he the same God today that he has always been? Is he still a jealous God? Does he still watch over the nations? Is he still appalled by idolatry? Does he still hate injustice? Is God still angry with the nations when they bite and and devour one another? I remember in a prayer meeting some years ago, somebody said, it was during the Yugoslavian thing when the, when the nation was breaking up, you remember, and somebody, there was news that a, a Ser- Serbian women were being raped by so-called Christian soldiers. What would you say to this Serbian woman, was the question that was asked. What would you, a Christian, say to this Serbian woman? And what would you say? Say, never mind, God still loves you. What good is that? Where's the comfort at that? Where's, where's the compassion in that? The only thing that I could think of saying was, if I was in that position, was to say, I'm so sorry. I am a Christian. Forgive us. Believe me, God is furious with what happened to you. Now, wouldn't you believe the same? That God is furious with that? That we should deal with one another with such inhumanity? Such carelessness. So is God different now? Have we sanitized God because we've made Jesus the friend of little children? Are you with me? We need to read these prophets and say, God, remind us, please, who you are. Now then, within the context of the prophets, we'll have to look a bit of Israeli history. Here it is, literally in a nutshell. They were a confederation of tribes. When David became their king, he united them in a single nation as a single kingdom. When his son Solomon succeeded him, that kingdom, that nation, reached the zenith of its power in all time. It was never greater or reached further or was more important amongst the nations than it was in the time of 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 Solomon. But Solomon's son was a very stupid man, really. He listened to the wrong, wrong advice. He was politically inept. He was just stupid. And because of his arrogance, at his accession to the throne, the single nation split into two. Two tribes became the nation of Judah. Ten tribes in the north became the nation of Israel. 
the nation of Israel took for its king a man called Jeroboam, who had been in exile from Solomon. And when Jeroboam came back, in order to establish his rule as king of Israel, he introduced some idolatrous worship and two or three special places of worship so that his people would not need to go to Jerusalem. And he slightly changed, he put, he put carbs there, idols there, for people to go and worship, but they kept all the language of the Lord our God. You understand? And from that moment, the northern kingdom grew increasingly idolatrous and away from God. And many of the minor prophets were sent to speak directly into those circumstances. You must understand that these prophets weren't wimps. I don't know how... We know that Jeremiah, who wasn't a minor prophet, we know that he wept and he trembled and he was arrested and jailed and he was thrown into a pit and left for dead because he spoke the word of God. But Amos, who was just a a tender of sycamore trees and, uh, and a shepherd whom God called out of Judah and sent him to the very, the very palaces of, um, of Israel's worship, to the very high priests of idolatrous worship, to stand in their presence and denounce what they were doing. That man, his life was in jeopardy from the moment he opened his mouth to declaim the word of the Lord, that the Lord alone, he is God. So we're not talking about wimps here. We're talking about men who put their lives on the line in order to serve the living God who alone is God. It means that we find elements of judgment. You mustn't imagine that God is quick to anger. The scripture says it many times. God is slow to anger. He's slow. He doesn't do what sometimes you or I might have done. Flare up and without thinking say, I'm going to swipe you off the face of the earth. God has never done that. And so you find that though his, his, his prophets are pronouncing judgment, that judgment may be delayed by 50, 70, 100 or more years. The judgment on Nineveh was delayed a hundred years. Jonah went there and they repented. And it was a hundred years, or was it a hundred and fifty years, before Naaman declaimed God's judgment on a city which had rejected the God it had once accepted. God is not quick to anger. He is slow to anger. He gives his people time to come to themselves and to repent and find themselves again, and find him. And so in the Minor Prophets, over and over again, you'll find phrases like this, Seek the Lord that you may live. Turn again. Repent. Maybe the Lord will show mercy. Again and again, the prophets are there saying, This is the doom which is inevitable if you continue to disobey or or forget God. This is inevitable, but nevertheless, God is crying out for you. The one who made a covenant with you is still pleading with you. There is still time. Turn again. Wake up. 
And over the years, neither the northern kingdom nor the southern kingdom listened. They were damned, in a sense, through their leadership. Oh, that's why it's a scary thing to be a minister in a church. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because those of you who are teachers will be judged with greater severity. And that's from the New Testament, not the Old Testament. These nations were damned by their leadership who led them into false ways and the people, most of them, followed like sheep. First, Israel went into exile to the Assyrians and then Judah, the southern kingdom, following the ways of the nations around them, also were taken into exile. And even though God punished his people, for the Lord disciplines those he loves, he never forgot his covenant. Always through the prophets you find this promise of reconciliation and forgiveness, and I will bring you back. I will purge you of your idols. I love you. I called you and I haven't reneged from my side of the covenant on my love, my passion for you. That is awesome. That is our God. Now when we have a look at the history of the minor prophets, you have to understand that Israel, together with the small nations around it, which were like... um, Uh, the Philistines and there was whatever they called Syria in those days and there was Moab and Ammon and Edom, Israel and Judah. These were small nations in that part of the globe which you know from your news over and over again as being Israel, West Bank and all the rest of it. You've seen the maps. That's the area these nations occupied. But that area was always between superpowers There was the superpower of the south, which was the Egyptian superpower, which was on the wane through much of this period that we'll be looking at. But then there were the superpowers of the north. There was the superpower which became Assyria, and it was the Assyrians that took Israel off into exile. But then the Assyrians were judged by God, and they were defeated by the Babylonians. But the Babylonians were worse, and they were defeated by the Persians. But there was always this buffer between the superpowers and it was the area occupied by Israel and the other. So this area was always under political uh, strain and warfare was a part of the diplomacy of the era. And so we find the prophets relating to all these nations around and about as they impinge upon his purpose in Israel. And so the prophets have things to say, not just to Israel, not just to Judah, but to the nations around and about, because God is the God of all the nations. In fact, I just love Amos, because the first two chapters begin like this. He does, he runs ring round Israel, sort of in his mind. He does a, a circuit around Israel and Judah. And he speaks about the nations around and about and how God has been watching them for generations and because of their inhumanity to one another, they also will receive judgment from God. As they've done, they shall receive. 
And it's the same all around, that sheer inhumanity, incapacity to care for others, to build up their own empire, to crush others out of long-term political and national rivalry and vengeance. God pronounces judgments on them. And then he comes to Israel. And then he comes to Judah. And for them, it's not their inhumanity to man. It's their failure to love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and strength and the fact that they have turned to objectionable idols. The most, uh, I think it's, um, I th- what it's in Isaiah, I can't remember the chapter, and he's not, of course, one of the minor prophets, but one of the most, um, um, what's the word, I'm sarcastic expressions of idolatry is found in Isaiah, where he says, oh, they chop down a tree, perhaps one of these trees, perhaps one of those, and they carve it, and they put some of it into the fire, and they warm themselves by it, and they cook their food over it, and then they chip it and and change it and, and, and put a little bit of paint on it, and then they bow down to it and say, oh, wood, advise me, oh, wood, advise me, turning these things into idols. What folly, says Isaiah. Don't they ever stop to think, well, just now I cooked my dinner on that and now I'm bowing down to this and asking it to lead me. But nations pursued idolatry and kings put idols to establish their own own authority and power so that people bowed down to them. Out of fear maybe, but our God is a jealous God. There is no God besides God. And we have to ask the question, are you still the same today, God? And if so, and I don't know the answer to this question, how do we understand what's going on around us in our news today? The Lord our God is one Lord, and the Jews were to love him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. In Isaiah 42, God said, I alone am Lord. I give my glory to no man or idol. And yet, we live after the advent of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, whom we understand because of the resurrection, we understand to have been designated by God, his regent, his son, our Saviour. We understand that all the fullness of the Godhead was dwelling bodily in Christ. Don't ask me to understand that. I don't. We're told in the Scripture that the Word of God by which the heavens were created, by which we even now are being sustained, if God were to withdraw His Word from our sustaining now, we would poof and become nothing. We are at this very moment being sustained by the will of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was crucified for our sins. He agonized 
and bore Israel's sin, the nation's sin, our sin. And God raised him from the dead. Therefore he is given a name above every other name. To which every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth shall bow. God has given to him the name which God says he gives to no one. Christ is Lord. We have one God, Father, Son, Spirit. Christ is Lord. And we're to love him with all our hearts and soul and mind and strength. One of the things Amos says is that the people in Israel, they, um, this is my paraphrase, um, they sit on ivory couches, they have roast lamb, they play their musical instruments, they idle away their time, but they don't grieve for the ruin of Joseph. Absolutely indifferent to the sinfulness, the blasé social life, the indifference of people to God. I just wonder about the churches these days. And I feel at times, Dave, wake up. Wake up. My couch isn't ivory and I don't play a guitar. But how much do I grieve for the ruin of, of Joseph? Do you hear what I'm saying? I feel God saying, wake up, Dave. I'm no different. Now Christ died for the nations and do you realise all around us there is idolatry? Does it get up our nose? Every day, all around us and some of the people you work with are bowing down to, to Ganesh or Vishnu or some other household god. Or they're bowing down several times a day to a god who has said, Jesus is not the Christ. Nor is he the son of God. He's but a prophet. Full stop. He's down the pantheon of importance. Or we listen to the news again and again and they keep showing us this picture of a great big Euro sign somewhere in Brussels, is it? And your government and the other governments around are beating their heads against brick walls trying to save their God? Idolatry is all around us. Just in our own news over the last sort of year or so, we've seen, we've seen the judicial system coming under review for corruption. We've seen bankers being constantly brought to book because of greed. We've seen politicians demoted because of their self-interest. We have seen the media being lambasted because it has, has, has worked in illegal ways all around us. And in, and in the committees and workplaces where you work, you know in some of them there are people planning how we make more money at other people's expense. All around us there is idolatry. And all around us there is indifference. And carelessness. And even it creeps in amongst us. I'm not, I'm, I'm not speaking only of others. 
Let me say, God says, wake up, Dave. Wake up. How often, perhaps, have you sat here and says, what is the church going to give me? I'm waiting to see how it goes, whether it suits me. I'm wondering whether I should even be here or go to another place which suits me better. I'll just wait and see. Perhaps you haven't. But you understand that Jesus Christ said we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And when Moses first said that to Israel, they were living amongst pagans and idolatrous situations. Imagine what that might mean in a situation of animism, okay? What it might have been in some of the nations around about them. You go to the river to get water, but you have to pass the field, and you have to appease the god of the field. Now you have to go past the demon of the tree, and now you've got to bring an offering to the goddess of the river because you're taking some of her water, and life is absolutely full of fear and anxiety and and uncertainty about the gods around and about. And Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He is the God of the field. He is the God of the tree. He is the God of the river. He is the God of your family. He is the God of your job. He is the God, according to the scripture, of your menstruation, ladies. He's the God of the way men interact with one another. He's the God of the way we deal with our neighbor's donkey when he falls into a pit. He's the God of the whole of life. There's nothing in your life or my life which doesn't come under his lordship. When you're in church and when you're walking out of it, when my wife goes to bed and I'm seated in front of the computer without her, when I'm watching television, my attitudes and my priorities, what comes first, the sermon tomorrow or match of the day? Everything comes under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. So now then, he does things differently now. He's made you his witnesses and prophets in all the earth. You are his witnesses. And he's done for you what he only did for a handful of the prophets. Micah says, but I, I am filled with the Spirit of God. But Moses prayed that all God's people would be. And through Jesus Christ, the heavens have opened and he's granted to you and to me to be filled with his Spirit in here and out there and on the trains and in the pension queue and in the playground and wherever. He's granted to you and to me to be filled with his Spirit. We are the witnesses of the only God who is. The church needs to repent. We have talked as leaders and elders that uh, we have squashed, the church generally and we amongst them, probably during our history, have squashed the aspirations of people who join the church because we have micromanaged their lives 
You must come into the orbit of the church and do things the way the leadership says, the way the church organizes. There are many crushed people in the church. We must repent of our attitudes. We must repent of the template we've placed upon the church, which suggests you can only meet God here. You can't meet him out there. God forbid. Nothing could be less true than that. That you can only hear God through an ordained minister? God forbid. The church has made too many mistakes. I've been and listened to some ministers who have the effect of a double dose of laudanum on all faith and vision. And there are people like um, like, uh, Gladys Aylward and uh, Jackie Pullinger and people that the church just overlooked. Where would the purpose of God be without them? No. God has granted to you his word and his spirit. He's granted to you leaders who may teach you, but Jesus is the Lord and his word is the arbiter. Okay? And you are called to go out and be his witnesses. Now then, you say, but I want more of God. Hallelujah. Because this is what Peter says. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Hallelujah. He's done this for us through Jesus Christ. And what does he say then? He says, okay, you, Dave, Pete, you, you make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Don't rely upon me to do that. Or your church leaders, or your house group alone. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and, well, you can read the rest of the passage yourself. It's 2 Peter chapter 1. God has gifted us with everything we need for life and godliness. He is an unchanging God. He has given you his spirit. He makes us partakers of his divine nature. He says, improve yourselves in God. And then go out into the whole world and be his witnesses. The question we still have to ask is, are we witnesses of the same God who was? Or is he a different God since Jesus? You may get some of your answers if you begin to read the book of Revelation. Amen.